Adoniram Judson was born on August 9th in the year 1788 in Massachusetts. The son of a Congregationalist minister, Adoniram was a highly intelligent boy with a promising future. He was so intelligent, in fact, that he entered college as a sophomore, having tested out of all of his freshman level courses. Despite being younger than the other students, Adoniram was neck and neck with his friend John Bailey for the top spot in the class. Even so, he was able to spend plenty of time attending fancy parties with his two best friends, John Bailey and Jacob Eames. Unbeknownst to Adoniram's parents, Jacob Eames was a deist. Deism was in vogue at the time, and many influential people in America in the late 18th century were also deists. Deism was a religion that rejected the Christian notion of God and the Christian gospel. Deists believed in the existence of God, but they rejected the authority of Scripture, and they did not believe that God was involved in human affairs. As Adoniram spoke to Jacob, he began to be convinced by Jacob's arguments that deism was true, and he himself became a deist. He resolved never to tell his father, but that resolution wouldn't hold for long. One day, a few years later, Adoniram was discussing his future with his parents. He was then a schoolteacher and was contemplating his next endeavor. He complained about being a schoolteacher and said that it wasn't for him. At this, his father challenged him to follow in his footsteps and enter the ministry. The idea of being a pastor infuriated Adoniram, who forgot himself and exclaimed that he'd rather go to hell than to ever become a pastor. He proceeded to insist that he was a deist and no longer believed in Christianity. Initially, both of his parents were distraught, but his father calmed down enough to have a logical conversation with his son. As he reasoned with Adoniram, Adoniram had a refutation for every point that his father raised. Finally, his father said, for every point I raise, you raise a better one. You argue with logic and clarity, but I will tell you one thing. No matter how good your arguments are, you are wrong. He committed to praying for his son, and his mother spent the next six days following Adoniram around the house, pleading with him and praying for him. So Adoniram left his house and spent the next several weeks trying to make his fortune in New York City as a playwright. But there was no opportunity in the theater for a 20-year-old with no experience. So Adoniram decided to head west. One day, he came to an inn that was almost completely full. The only bed they had left was in a room with a dying man. The room had a partition in the middle with a bed on either side. Adoniram was exhausted from the day's travel and thought he would be able to sleep easily, but he was wrong. He couldn't sleep and was instead haunted by the thoughts of the dying man next to him. He began reflecting on his own life 
And the deist beliefs that seemed so fine and respectable in college now seemed empty and joyless. He thought about this man. What must he be thinking? Did he believe in life after death? Late in the night, Adoniram finally fell asleep. The next morning, the innkeeper informed him that the man had died during the night. Out of curiosity, Adoniram asked if he knew the man's name. Of course, said the innkeeper. I've had to write to his family. His name is Jacob Eames. The realization that the dying man next to him was none other than his own college friend was too much for Adoniram. He spent most of the day in stunned silence as he reflected on his friend's death and what it would mean. He thought about his empty, deist beliefs and wondered what would become of him after he died. He thought about his... He began to reflect on a pastor that he knew who was staying with his uncle, who had seemed so content and joyful, and he thought about the Christian faith of his parents that he had rejected. Eventually, Adoniram did indeed come to faith in Christ. And not only that, but he went on to become a missionary to Burma and translated the Bible into Burmese. In fact, his Bible translation in Burmese, which was completed in 1834, is still widely used today. So we see here two men, Jacob Eames, who died, as far as we know, rejecting the Christian gospel, and Adoniram Judson, who was converted to faith in Christ and went on to become a great instrument for God's glory and for the gospel. We will see a similar contrast between two men in today's passage. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 2 through 5 today. If you remember, the last time I preached, we looked at Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, and we did an overview of the book of Malachi. So today, we're going to be looking at the next passage in the book, which again is verses 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau... I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word and for this opportunity to examine this passage together. Lord, I pray that as we uh, examine this passage, Lord, that you would use your word effectively in in our lives. I pray that you would use it to bring about conviction of sin, that we might hate sin as you do. I pray that you would use it to comfort and encourage your people that we might look to Christ and find comfort and sustenance in him. Lord, glorify yourself through our service today and in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
This passage, Malachi 1, 2 through 5, is the beginning of the oracle that is mentioned in verse 1. It depicts a type of conversation between Yahweh and the people of Israel called a disputation. The book of Malachi contains six such disputations, and so this is the first of the six. A disputation was a literary structure or argument that consisted of a claim, then a counterclaim, and then a refutation of the counterclaim. So here in our passage today, we see the claim in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. So that's the claim. Then comes the counterclaim. But you say, how have you loved us? Malachi then proceeds to record Yahweh's refutation of that counterclaim in verses 2b through 5. So let's begin by looking at Yahweh's claim in verse 2. In this disputation, what is the initial claim made by Yahweh? He says, I have loved you. Now, who is he speaking to? If we look at verse 1, we see the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So we see that the audience of the book and the object of God's address in verse 2 is Israel. God is declaring his love for his people, Israel. Now, what does this word love mean? The word translated love is a covenant word. It's describing a close familial relationship between God and Israel. And it's closely connected to God's sovereign choice of his people, Israel. To love is to choose. When God says to Israel, I have loved you, He is speaking about his election of Israel for a special and exclusive relationship with himself. We see this same type of language in Deuteronomy. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Here in Deuteronomy, we see this connection of love and choice. The Lord set his love upon his people Israel and chose them as his own. So in Malachi, we need to keep this sovereign choice and covenantal love in the background as we read the passage. As many of you know, uh, we welcomed our fifth child into the world uh, a week and a half ago. And as a father, the birth always brings a wave of emotion with it. The, the baby always seems very abstract to me until, he's, until they're actually born. As he grew during the pregnancy, I knew he was coming, but it didn't really feel real until we get to the delivery room and I see the baby. And as, as the doctor handed Jack, our son, to Cammie, that was the first time I had ever seen him. But in that moment, I knew that I would give my life for him. I had never met Jack, never seen him, but I loved him immediately and completely. And if a sinful father like me can love my son so completely, then believers, how much more does your heavenly father love you? If you are right now trusting in Christ, 
then God looks at you with an even greater everlasting love. Just as God set his love upon his people Israel, so also he set his love upon you and chose you from before the foundation of the world for his own. So believers, take comfort today in God's sovereign choice and everlasting love for you. In our passage, God declares his love for Israel. And how does Israel respond? How have you loved us? This question is a challenge, an implicit denial of God's love. It's a reflection of the beliefs and the attitudes of the Israelites in this time period. It's as if Israel is saying, oh really, how exactly is it the case that you love us? Now, why would Israel challenge God's claim to love them with this rhetorical question? It's because their perception of their circumstances led them to conclude that God didn't love them. Their perception of their circumstances led them to conclude that God didn't love them. The people doubted God's love for them because they were experiencing hardship and they were discouraged. The book of Malachi was written around 430 BC, which was after the people of Israel had returned from the Babylonian captivity around the same time Nehemiah was written. The people of Israel had returned to the land and they're in suffering and hardship. They returned from exile with the expectation of the coming of the Messianic kingdom and the triumph of Israel. However, the power of Persia remained unbroken, and the kingdom had not materialized. Therefore, the people of Israel reached the conclusion that Yahweh no longer loved them. The temptation for us, brothers and sisters, is to judge the people of Israel as being foolish and ungrateful for questioning God's love. Who are they to doubt God? Don't they see what God has done for them throughout their history? And didn't they constantly disobey his commands? These are all valid questions, but how often do we do the exact same thing? How often do we complain about our circumstances to ourselves or to one another? Think about this past week. How many times did you complain to yourself or reflect with negativity on your own circumstances? Isn't this exactly the same attitude that the people of Israel displayed in Malachi? But look how much we have to be grateful for. Think of all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We all face hard circumstances. You might be facing an impossible situation right now. Stress at work, tension in your marriage, problems with your children, a debilitating health diagnosis. But think about how much God has blessed you. Not one of those hardships can separate you from the love of God displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Not one of those hardships can take away the righteousness of Christ, which is yours by faith. Not one of those hardships can remove the reward that awaits you when you leave this earth. What a gracious, loving God we serve. 
So we see that God has declared his love for Israel, and Israel has responded to that claim by questioning and challenging God's love. After the people of Israel question God's love for them, God proceeds to refute their argument. Look with me again at verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. God refutes Israel's challenge by pointing back to Jacob and Esau. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, and let's read about the birth of Jacob and Esau. It's Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. When we look in Genesis, which of the twins, by the custom and practice of that day, should have inherited Isaac's wealth and blessing. It should have been Esau, the firstborn. So by custom, Esau should have been the favored son. But Yahweh turns this on his head when he says, the older shall serve the younger. By the common logic of the day, God ought to have preferred Esau, but God in his providence chose Jacob. This is what he is pointing back to in Malachi when he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Let's turn back to Malachi chapter 1 and continue reading. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, for most of us in our modern context with modern sensibilities, the part of this verse that concerns and disquiets us is the phrase, Esau I have hated. However, if we're thinking biblically, what should amaze us about this verse is not Esau I have hated, but rather the phrase, I have loved Jacob. Now, why do I say this? Because there was nothing admirable in either Jacob or Esau that demanded or required God to love them. We see throughout both of their lives that they were both sinful wicked men who disobeyed God's law. They, like all men, deserved only judgment from God's hand. God would have been perfectly justified in hating and rejecting both of these men for their rebellion and their sin against his perfect law. Yet, 
though God hates what is evil, and though he is perfect and holy in every way, in order to demonstrate his mercy, he loved Jacob. In God's sovereign providence, he set aside the birthright prerogative of Esau, Isaac's own preference for his firstborn, and even Jacob's moral imperfections, and he set his love upon Jacob and Jacob's descendants. God's love was not conditioned upon the moral qualities of his people, but instead came from his own, own sovereign will and mercy. You may have recognized this phrase, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, from our scripture reading this morning. Paul quotes this phrase in the book of Romans. Let's look at how Paul applies this verse in the context of Romans 9. <clears throat> Turn with me to Romans chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 6. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. <clears throat> Here in Romans 9, Paul takes Malachi's statement about Jacob and Esau, and he applies it to salvation. For Malachi, God's rejection of Esau and his election of Jacob was evidence of God's love for the people of Israel. Paul takes this a step further to defend God's freedom in granting mercy and grace as he wishes. Notice what Paul says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul uses Jacob and Esau as an example of God's freedom in bestowing mercy on whomever he wills. God set his love upon Jacob, 
and chose him for his own before the two were even born. In the Greek epic, The Odyssey, Odysseus and his men are trying to reach his home island of Ithaca after the Battle of Troy. There's a point in their journey where they must sail through a strait between two monsters, Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla lived on the cliffs and would snatch men off the ships as they sailed past. Charybdis was an enormous whirlpool that would swallow ships whole, dragging them to the bottom of the ocean. In the Odyssey, we read, I donned my heroic armor, seized long spears in both my hands, and marched out on the half deck, forward, hoping from there to catch the first glimpse of Scylla, ghoul of the cliffs, swooping to kill my men. But nowhere could I make her out, and my eyes ached, scanning that mist-bound rock face top to bottom. Now, wailing in fear, we rode up, on up, the, up those straits, Scylla to starboard, dreaded Charybdis off to port, her horrible whirlpool gulping the sea surge down. In order to pass through without losing the ship, Odysseus and his men had to go right between the two monsters without veering too close to either side. Similarly, when we talk about God's sovereignty and providence, we want to be careful that we are balanced in our theology. On the one hand, we ought not to question God's providence or His sovereign freedom. Scripture teaches that God has ordained whatever comes to pass, and that His sovereign decree rules over all creation. We cannot deny or reject His sovereignty. On the other hand, as humans, we are all responsible for our sin. God does not tempt anyone nor is he the author of sin. As long as we affirm both God's sovereignty and human moral responsibility, we stand firm on biblical teaching. Looking back at our passage, we've seen how God begins his refutation of Israel by looking back at Jacob and Esau. Now we enter the second part of the Lord's refutation. Look with me at verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. We see a transition here in a couple of ways. In verse 3, Yahweh was pointing toward his past treatment of Esau. Now, he's expanding that to Esau's descendants, the Edomites. He's also moving from talking about what happened in the past to a promise about what will happen in the future. Verse 4 begins with a conditional statement. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the, Lord of Ho- the, <clears throat> the word Edom here means red, and it describes the descendants of Esau. The word may come from Esau's red complexion in the birth narrative in, in Genesis, or it may come from the color of the soil in the region that the Edomites lived in. But here, Edom is resolved to do what the Israelites were reluctant to do, namely to rebuild after their destruction. But how does Yahweh respond? If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, 
The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. Malachi describes Yahweh as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. The phrase is emphasizing that Yahweh has armies at his disposal, whether in the physical sense of being sovereign over the armies of Babylon and other nations, or in the spiritual sense of having armies of angels at his, at his side. It speaks to God's power over Edom. And what does the Lord of hosts resolve to do? To frustrate Edom's plans to rebuild. He also prophesies about the legacy of Edom. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Edom, because of its wickedness, and rejection by Yahweh will be an object of his wrath. They are destined for destruction. The point of this reference to Edom is that it is Yahweh's choice, not Edom's determination, that determines Edom's fate. The difference between Israel and Edom is the plan of the Lord. Consider the earlier example of Adoniram and his friend Jacob. Both men were deists who rejected Christianity because of their self-righteous, supposed enlightenment. Yet, one died in his disbelief, and the other was redeemed by God for his own purposes. What separated Adoniram Judson from Jacob Eames is the same thing that separated the descendants of Jacob from the descendants of Esau, namely the plan of God. We've seen in these verses that Yahweh is marshalling two pieces of evidence to defend his claim of love for Israel. First, he looks back at his rejection of Esau and his covenantal love of Jacob. Then he looks forward and makes a commitment to frustrate the rebuilding of Edom, Esau's descendants. This brings us to the crux, the crowning statement of the passage in verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The people of Israel will see God's judgment of Edom and they will have no recourse but to praise the Lord who judges the wicked and upholds his people. Notice that this is a future promise. If Edom attempts to rebuild, the Lord will oppose their efforts and destroy their work. This is a firm promise to the people of Israel that God will accomplish his purpose with regard to Edom. And what is the reason for this judgment? What is the reason that God is going to sustain his people Israel? Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the pinnacle of the passage. The Lord's purpose in choosing Jacob's descendants and rejecting Esau's descendants was to make his name great. The Lord set his love upon a wicked and undeserving people to sustain them for his own purposes. Notice that this is the same driving purpose that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 9, where he quotes from Exodus, 
where God says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God works both in his election of Jacob's descendants and in his rejection of Pharaoh and of Esau's descendants for his own glory and to make his name great. Notice also how Malachi includes the phrase beyond the border of Israel. It's not simply that God is the God over Israel and his power outside that jurisdiction is limited. Rather, the people will praise God for being great over all of creation, beyond the borders of Israel. He is the Lord of hosts, sovereign over Israel, sovereign over Edom, and sovereign over all foreign powers. The driving force of this passage is that God is great and his purpose will stand. He alone is able to preserve his people despite their current circumstances. Now, as we reflect on how we can practically apply the message of this passage, a few thoughts come to mind. What situation were the people of Israel in? They were doubting God's love for them because of their discouragement and because of their circumstances. How often do we doubt God's love for us because of our circumstances. How about you? Maybe you have doubted God's love even this morning, perhaps even now. But brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Consider how the Lord has preserved his church. How many times throughout church history have God's people been persecuted by wicked nations and governments. Yet God, for his own glory and to demonstrate his mercy and grace, preserved his people. Consider also how the Lord has preserved you. How many times have you stumbled, but the Lord has sustained you? Consider how many people alive today have rejected Christ. How many today have not heard the gospel? But you, here you are. God has brought you to faith in his son. What would your life be like today if God had not redeemed you? What sin and filth did he rescue you from? You think about your circumstances. You wish you had a better job, more money, you wish that you had a nicer house or that your kids behaved better. You have all of these negative things that you focus on. Stop dwelling on these negative things and reflect on all of God's blessings toward you. What did you deserve? You deserved only judgment. You deserved to be cast into hell and separated from God for all eternity. Yet God demonstrated his love for you by taking the wrath that you deserved and instead punishing his own son. But perhaps you're here and you have not trusted in Christ for salvation. 
Perhaps you're like Jacob Eames, the deist who thought himself too smart for the Christian religion. You are in a situation most pitiable. You see, you have no hope in this life to cling to. What awaits you when you die is the judgment and wrath that all men deserve. Like Edom and like Pharaoh, you are under God's judgment. You sit on the precipice of eternity, and all you have to look forward to is suffering. Not only that, but you will not find joy and contentment in this life. You wander aimlessly, searching for that which will bring you happiness. But the only thing that will bring you true joy and fulfillment is to turn from your own sin, to repent of your self-righteousness, and to look to Christ. Look to the one who went to the cross and bore the wrath of God against the sins of his people. Christ took the punishment that we deserved so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. You can have peace and joy and fulfillment in this life and in the next. All you must do is repent and trust in Christ. Believers, the next time you're tempted to be discouraged by your circumstances, read this passage in Malachi and take heart. The Lord, sovereign over all creation, perfect in holiness and majesty, eternal and mighty, has set his love upon you. And he is even now building his church and drawing a people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation for his own glory. Who can stand against our God? The next time you're feeling discontent, think about the greatness of the God we serve and say with Malachi, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, forgive us for our discontentment and for dwelling on our circumstances. Lord, every single one of us has been guilty of being ungrateful to you. Yet, you are a patient God who loves and cares for his people. May your word encourage the hearts of your people today. May our church be seasoned with your mercy, your goodness, and your grace. Lord, use us even today for your glory and for your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray, amen.